Monday, June 3rd. I wake up late because I went to bed late. What the hell did I expect? It's RCR stories, and I'm really trying to get this done before July. But as last night blended into the morning, I came to realize how much ground I'd really have to cover if I wanted to tell the story right. It's a daunting process, but I would rather it take forever and be good than rush it out and realize there are all these things I got wrong. I drive to my hometown to visit the cafe where I do all my work, since I feel relatively unproductive anywhere else. The issue, of course, is that the cafe closes pretty early in the afternoon, so the sooner I get there, the better. I know, with writing, you really can't afford to just wait for conditions to be ideal. You won't always be in a perfect frame of mind to write, so you make do with what you can. Now, as I arrive in the parking lot, I can see an elderly woman meet my eyes and slowly begin making her way over. In a brittle voice, she asks if I've seen a Volvo, since she can't seem to find her car in this too large parking lot. She explains that she isn't really familiar with the area, and she'd been in the pharmacy for quite a long time, so naturally she was a bit confused about where she left her car. And I get it, because that's happened to me before, too. And it's not as if she seemed disoriented in a way that would necessitate calling the police. I would like to think if I'd gotten the vibe that she probably shouldn't be on the road, I'd have spoken to any number of police officers who tend to roam the area. Typically, they're hanging out in this lot anyway, this elderly lady seems distressed, so I decide to remain with her until we can find her car. I ask her to stay where she is while I search the lot, since there's no point in her spending the energy of searching when I could just dart around the lot on her behalf. If I had a dollar for every pearl white SUV or junked up early 2000s sedan that infested the lot like spotted lanternflies, I could have afforded to just buy the lady a new Volvo. But hers didn't appear to be anywhere in the lot, so I asked her if there were any distinguishing features on the car, like a bumper sticker or other ornamentation. She thought for a moment and mentioned one of those temporary license plate stickers in the back windshield. Not much to go on given how prevalent those things tend to be, but it's enough. The sun is beating down on both of us as five minutes turn into ten, with no Volvo in sight. Wait here a second, I tell her. I got an idea. Now normally, when there's a lack of available spaces in the lot, or the spots are so tightly clustered that people don't feel like doing the gymnastics of squeezing into a spot bookended by cars that are situated crookedly, the parking spills out onto the side streets. A nearby restaurant where Brian and I used to write in the early days of RCR was in the midst of a lunchtime rush, so I glided past the small clearing of midday diners and walked along the avenue. And there it was a Volvo with a temporary license plate sticker in the back windshield. The woman had a delicate voice, but managed to excitedly proclaim, There it is! with a mixture of enthusiasm and relief. I don't know why, but she started to apologize. Perhaps because she felt like I'd been inconvenienced somehow? Or maybe she just felt silly for having lost the car in the first place. But I assured her it wasn't any trouble at all. It happens, I say, my go-to phrase for everything. I would hope someone would help me, too, if I lost my car. But then, she hugged me. A complete stranger. She took my hand, and she hugged me. And I was caught in a sudden rush of emotion. Because it reminded me of my grandmother's hugs. The effusive, unrestrained feeling. The genuine warmth. I'd spent a lot of time not thinking about my grandmother in any place other than dreams. Confronting memories in the harshness of daylight seemed a step too far. 
although it seems even harsher to avoid remembering. And frankly, in a moment like this, I can't help but remember her. Because I think if she were here, even knowing nothing about cars, she would have tried to help this woman too. While moving from Puerto Rico to the United States in 1956, my grandmother had taken a plane with her six children in New York City to meet my grandfather, who'd gone ahead in search of work. Of her six kids, two were infants. But the rules stipulated that you can only take one child on your lap on the flight. The plane was already at capacity. However, a kindly lady offered to take my uncle onto her lap. This anonymous, elderly woman had agreed to watch over the baby of the family for no other reason than human camaraderie. When my grandmother reached New York, the elderly woman's family was nowhere in sight. She was in a new place, completely disoriented because the family members who were supposed to pick her up were nowhere to be found. My aunts and uncles quickly began tugging on my grandmother's skirt with anxious, impatient stomachs and bored, tired bodies. But my grandmother refused to leave this woman. My grandma didn't have much back then, but she had her word, and she didn't give it easily. So whether my aunts or uncles liked it or not, they were all going to wait with this woman until her family came to get her. Of course, in an age before cell phones, my grandmother had no idea how long this would be. But she waited anyway. And as minutes became hours and day sunk into night, they waited and waited and waited. When finally, the woman's family came for her. And for as often as I was told this story growing up, I still don't remember the eventual explanation for where that woman's family had been all that time, whether they'd gotten lost along the way or had traveled to the wrong place, or if they'd just plain forgotten that they were supposed to be picking someone up. But the where and the why didn't make a difference. It was a matter of principle for my grandmother to remain with this woman, because if it had not been for that woman's kindness, she wouldn't have been able to make the trip that day. When the woman's family came to get her, they were immensely grateful to my grandma, but no more grateful than my grandmother was to their matriarch in the first place. That was 60 years ago and change. And now I'm with an elderly lady hugging me, all because I helped her find her Volvo. I try not to cry because it all feels so familiar, yet unreachably distant. I watch the woman as she drives off and wonder where she's going if she has people to worry about her, if driving is the sole measure of freedom she has left, the final reminder of a freedom slowly eroding. Because that's the difference, isn't it? For the elderly, driving is about holding on to something you're afraid of losing, holding on to it with both hands because once it's gone, you're at the mercy of others' schedules. It's a matter of freedom, but also a matter of principle. Monday, June 3rd, late afternoon. My nephew spends the summers with me. As the family member who more or less works from home, I get the opportunity to spend a lot of time with Nate, to pick him up when I'm done with the day's writing and hang out with him until his parents get out of work. It's strange to think of an 11-year-old as your best friend, but sometimes I forget that I'm talking with someone to whom I'm a parental-like figure. Yet the parental-like mind leaps to the fore when you think there's danger afoot. As I drive up to his house, I see ambulances and a fire and rescue team along the intersection. Nate is on his bike, looking out over the scene. Two sedans mangled, debris littering the street. I saw the accident. The two ladies had neck braces on them when the ambulance took him away. 
Nate tells me, explaining that one lady t-boned the other, and shrapnel flew all over creation, nearly hitting him in the process. And while I'm sure he's exaggerating that part, it's mostly me wanting to believe he exaggerated, because the alternative fills me with a dread that's evenly distributed throughout my body. A tow truck comes to haul the remaining wrecked car away, and I honestly can't even tell what make or model it is, other than the vague notion that it's something Japanese. I just remember thinking how miraculous it was that, according to Nate, the women were able to stand under their own power after the accident. We head inside with a set of customized, temporary tattoos that my nephew got to mimic my tattoo. I'd been planning for years to get a tattoo of my niece and nephew's names, but I could never decide on a design. I don't ever plan on having kids because my niece and nephews are enough. They're more than enough. They're everything. And so I decided to pick the Oribesh script from Star Wars and have their names put on my left bicep. Sure enough, my nephew got the same tattoos in Oribesh with the names of people who are important to him. We talk a bit more about the accident we just witnessed and hope that the women are okay, even going as far as to check the news a bit later for word on their condition. But we find nothing. Once we're done, we hop in my car and head to the park to play. When we get to the car, he complains that I really ought to get new body panels, or at least clean the ones I have. And you know, he's right. It's been three weeks since I washed my car. We're overdue. Now, I love my car, but I sometimes wonder if he loves it more than I do. What's crazy is that I don't know how much his love of cars comes from me. Because he's always been into cars, in the way all young boys are into cars, until that critical juncture between adolescence and your teen years, where you have to make that choice whether cars are going to be your thing, or if it's just one of many fads on the rickety bridge between phases of your youth. Sometimes the love of cars escalates, and other times the gray matter forms around something else entirely. I liked cars, then I got Final Fantasy VII as a reward for good grades when I was 12, and my entire personality arced around this experience I wasn't even supposed to have, because I went in there to get Die Hard Arcade, but they were sold out. So I got this thing that I saw a really cool commercial for. But funnily enough, I guess the road led back to cars anyway, didn't it? For now, my nephew loves cars. I remember I used to take him to the Tons of Trucks show in our local area as a toddler, and he got to mess around in any number of service vehicles, from old fire engines to modern ambulances to school buses that had seen better days. We went to car shows, and he began treating Teslas the way my generation treated VW bugs. Sure, he wouldn't punch my shoulder any time he saw one, but he'd excitedly point one out each time, as if he'd never seen one before. By the time he was nine, he decided he wanted a Lamborghini Aventador, or a Huracan, or literally any Lamborghini. And I'd tell him, well, you better start saving up, kid. And yet, for all of Nate's lofty automotive dreams, and for all the time we spent at the New York Auto Show looking at all the modern offerings that would likely be the regular cars of the 2020s, his eyes still wandered over to the Mustangs. I wasn't a car guy growing up, but I loved Mustangs, and I'm not even entirely sure why. I suppose I just liked the way they looked. The sounds they made. Hell, my grandma used to have a Mustang too, for crying out loud. So I guess it's not that surprising that my nephew loves Red Betty, and made me promise to pass it down to him if the time ever came for me to get a new car. Granted, I plan on owning Betty till she dies, but if I were to pass the car down to anyone, it'd be Nate, because he's the only person I know who loves this car as much as I do. With that said, I'd ideally like to pass down something safer.
But in a macro sense, it's not about Betty specifically for him. At least I don't think it is. Really, it's about what she represents. For the young, driving is about the acquisition of freedom, and all the possibilities that freedom represents. For as much as you might want to hold on to your childhood and all the benefits that go with it, you also want to move closer to the age at which your key ring starts filling up. Because every key is a milestone. First car, first apartment, first storage locker at a gym where old men walk around with their balls hanging out, bearing butt cheeks that are pressed together in a sad, downward-sloping arc. A kid will get everything out of childhood he or she can, like getting that last dollop of toothpaste from a spent tube. But there comes a point in time where the desire to move past the frivolities of childhood overwhelms whatever urge there is to remain that little kid who rides bicycles and builds forts and has nerf gun battles every summer until the sun begins its retreat behind the horizon and you come home to a house that smells like shepherd's pie and sounds like America's Got Talent. I think, in a lot of cases, a driver's license means more to a young person than the right to vote or the right to drink. And I'm not saying whether that's right or wrong or not, but in the grand scheme of things, the license itself is a totem for a lifetime of potential. Potential for road trips and dates and jobs, uh, anonymous shenanigans in back seats or front seats or trunk beds. It's spending 15 years in Midgar and then hitting 16 and boom, the world map. Or if you want to take a less cogent Final Fantasy example, it's like spending all of your time in Cocoon and then suddenly you're in Grand Pulse, although Grand Pulse really isn't that great either, but whatever. You're suddenly in a wider newer world, in a very Obi-Wan kind of way. This is without even getting into the customization aspect of cars, and how a teenager might use his or her car as an avatar for self-expression, at a period in life where it feels like society is resisting their slowly crystallizing individualism. The notion that your personality doesn't count because you haven't experienced enough yet. You don't know what love is. You don't know what hurt is. You don't know what struggle is. When some teens know it better than many adults ever will. And even those who don't know real love or real pain yet, they still have personalities that are foundational blocks in building the person they will inevitably become. And that's important. Because no matter how much we grow, the person we were in our youth is still in there somewhere. A Russian nesting doll of personality iterations, stacking up to form the face we show the world at whatever age we think our potential is realized, if we ever make it that far. And really, whoever does. Because if you ever let yourself feel like you've realized your potential, what's left to strive for? I hope my nephew is picking up that cars are to be treated with respect. That people are to be treated with respect. That the gravity of owning a car or operating one carries with it a power rarely possessed in any other aspect of life. I guess... I just worry about him. I want him... I want him to be okay. I want him to be safe. I hope those ladies from the accident are okay. And I hope Nate never knows what it's like to be in their situation. I hope nobody I love does. I drop Nate back off at his house. Don't crash my car, he tells me. I don't plan on it. Tuesday, June 4th. The sun is low as I fill up at the Wawa. An elderly man in what looks like a Ford Focus slowly backs up into a parking spot. 
there's clearly a black sedan already in the spot, and I keep expecting the man is going to see it. But instead of decreasing his speed as he backs into the spot, he actually starts picking up speed. Now, not a lot of speed, mind you, but enough. Now, I'm too far away to get this man's attention. But I raise a hand anyway like I'm in sex ed class, and I have a stupid question to ask about STDs. Yeah, uh, what happens if I, um, am coming out of the bathroom and, like, you know how you kind of pinch off a little bit of pee, like, you don't really shake it all off? And, and what if, like, somehow later on and I'm messing around with a girl and, like, she, she touches, like, the, the part of my underwear that the little bit of pee is on? And, uh, like, is she gonna get sick from that? Like, if she does the same thing, like, if girls pinch off a little bit of pee, like, are you, am I gonna get sick from her, too? Like, please tell me that everything's going to be okay and why is everyone laughing i try to get the man's attention and well needless to say it was too late before i even got my hand up it was too late now that's my sound effect just roll with it the man slams his rear bumper right into the sedan and it's not even like time freezes it's a moment in a catalog of other moments where all you can do is shrug and say well i guess that just happened Thankfully, there was no one in the car that was hit, and yet, even more amazingly, there hardly seems to be any damage to the parked sedan from what I could see. Still, it didn't stop the elderly man from getting out a piece of paper and leaving a note on the windshield. The look on his face suggests an embarrassment that runs marrow deep. It's as if he realizes in this moment, for the first time, that maybe he isn't the motorist he used to be. Still filling up my car, I find myself reading way too much into the disappointed gaze of a stranger, playing armchair psychiatrist and recognizing a kinship in anxiety, that universal look of introspective terror, the realization that you've done something wrong and that it reflects back on you and shifts the perspective you have of yourself. It's as if he recognizes this could be the end of his freedom, that his time behind the wheel is coming to an end, that maybe it should. The man drives off, no apparent damage to his rear bumper either, except for the paint chips which might have already been missing. Sometimes it's hard to tell if something is newly lost, or if it's always been absent. Thursday, June 6th. Brian invites me hiking. I've never gone hiking before, but I'm an enormous ball of anxiety and existential dread, and I think it'd be good for me to get out into some semblance of nature, away from the ruckus of civilization and the eye-straining glow of a computer screen. Brian assures me it's going to be leisurely, nothing too taxing. I make a brief stop in the restroom, which uses a composting system for human waste, meaning the smell is completely unbearable. But for how pleasant it is outside, I guess it makes for a stark contrast that really makes you appreciate the brisk outdoor air. A brief burst of rain had soaked the valley, and although the sun is now out, the wind blows droplets off the trees to soak us with a gentle mist. We don't talk much during the hike. And really, it wasn't about the talking. We could have done that over beers or coffees or nothing at all. This is about being out in the middle of nowhere, among the rustling trees and their untroubled music, sitting on rocks and looking out across the vastness. And yes, taking selfies, because I'm one of those people. Hey, look at me, I'm out in nature, blah, blah, blah. I want to be seen doing things. Check out my social media page. I got the link in the Instagram and the Twitter and it's in the bio and in the description. And, you know, you hit the little bell icon. Things gonna be happening. Things gonna be happening tonight. Yeah. It's just another beautiful day in Pennsylvania. 
the sunshine, the birds chirping, the sight of them pooping, anonymous yelling in the distance. It's just pure nature, for nature belongs to no man, only to itself. Yeah, I think hiking has made me an asshole. But I can honestly say that in months, I had never felt less anxiety or trepidation than I did while hiking with my friend. Not a car to be heard for miles around. Nothing but trees and grass and rocks and birds and benches with names carved into them. Lookouts with railings into which are written lifelong proclamations of love for relationships that are likely already over. There's peace here. Which is not to say that cars don't offer me peace in my daily life. I like going on drives for their own sake. Hell, who doesn't? Except for people who drive for a living. In which case, I don't blame them. But this is decompression. Hiking? This right here, this is a manual reset. It's freedom. Friday, June 7th. I tweet a picture from the hike to let my followers know that it went well and that I totally didn't die. Angela White responds. I guess being seen doing things has its benefits. Saturday, June 8th. World War II weekend. Nate has been looking forward to this for months. He's a huge history buff, and although his tattoos are already fading, he proudly displays them beneath his white t-shirt and khaki pants with the dog tags he got from last year. We arrive in the midst of a battle in the makeshift French village that they built. I've never seen a reenactment before, not even when my class went on that field trip to Gettysburg in 6th grade, and I gave Molly Becker a copy of Can't Nobody Hold Me Down by Puff Daddy and Mace because I knew she liked it. And gosh, she was really pretty. Yeah, and it was no big deal to lose it, since I had Weird Al's Bad Hair Day album on cassette to listen to on the entire bus ride home on my Talkboy, because I was the living embodiment of 1990s consumerism. Hey, you guys! You wanna play Pogs? I just got a slammer! We wander the grounds, the whole family together, underneath the sun's oppressive heat. It's so hot. Where's the cool breeze? I had plans on making a video out of the trip, but it was logistically untenable given the sound issues and the sheer volume of people. Let's give everything we can to our fighting boys overseas. Remember, every time you twist a nut, think of Hitler and what it's doing to him. Wait a minute. World War II weekend drew a record crowd this year due in large part to the D-Day anniversary festivities, it being the 75th anniversary and all. The cars aren't as prevalent as they were last year, although maybe they simply moved to different areas. What I do see are a lot of planes, and so I get inside an old supply plane with the kids. Sorry, I don't know the actual names of any of these planes because I didn't have Tony Airlines with me, and I didn't see any placards nearby. The kids look around, marveling at the controls, the cockpit, the weight of the yoke, and how hard it is to really pull it back. My youngest nephew looks out the emergency escape window, feeling the breeze and shouting down to our family outside. My niece is marveling at the giant sacks of flour and coffee at the back of the plane, and the old-time radio that's situated towards the front for some reason. It's a mini-museum with mini-villages behind glass along the sides above the seats. We move to a different plane, meant for tracking submarines. The ticket taker served, and talks to us about his time in the Navy, and the privilege of being able to fly. As we climb up the ladder and into the giant structure, the man's words echo in my mind. It is a privilege, because privileges can be lost. 
They can be revoked. And then what are we left with? The memory of the privilege. How good it made us feel then, and how badly it makes us feel to have lost it now. And driving is the same way. A lot of young people feel they have a right to drive, and that's something other people can debate if they want to, but me personally, I've always seen it as a privilege, because it's something you earn, and you have to keep earning it over and over again through your actions, through a steadfast commitment to proving you deserve it. I don't think anybody is perfect. I mean, I know I'm certainly not. All motorists will make mistakes or have something unfortunate happen to them on the road. Maybe it's something they can control, and maybe it simply isn't. But regardless of what happens, you just try your best to go on proving that you deserve this. You go on each day trying to enjoy what you've earned. Because one day, this privilege may very well be taken from you by the erosion of time. And yet, the loss of that privilege doesn't always have to mean your freedom is ended. Cars are merely one aspect of travel, one aspect of the independence life has to offer. But there's so much more to life than how you get around. So much more to life than the lens through which you view your independence. Whether it's driving, whether it's flying a plane, whether it's hiking with a friend, whether it's gingerly walking through a parking lot to find a stranger's Volvo, or whether it's staying put because you don't want to abandon a woman who helped you. Independence means having the freedom to hold to your word. A good life is having things you fear losing, because it means you cherish what you have. Driving symbolizes a vast, speculative freedom to teenagers. To the elderly, the last vestiges of their independence. In either respect, it's something not to be taken for granted. Just like family. Just like friends. Just like a job you love, or a warm moment that you'll never forget. Just drive, but respect the drive, because not everybody gets to.